Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 37. Jesus said, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clear guidance. And I pray today that as we look at this message that Jesus delivered, that we would take what is what is said here take to heart and that we would build our life upon that solid foundation that you are and upon your word so father help us to hear these words today and in those areas particularly where we need to grow and mature or give things over to you i pray that we would be obedient to do that in jesus name amen many years ago kent hughes wrote a book with the title are evangelicals born again? Now, it's kind of an interesting title because Kent, at that time, was the pastor of College Church in Wheaton. I mean, large evangelical church. And we're kind of reading that and going, well, this is a little intriguing. What are you getting at, Kent? You know, of course evangelicals are born again, right? I mean, we believe the gospel. We believe that people are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's not by works, you know. It's, it's by what Christ has done for us that we are saved. Of course, evangelicals are saved. But Kent was asking the question, what about the person who professes to know Christ, but their life never shows any change? Or what about the person who prayed a prayer, prayed that sinner's prayer, but then walked away from the faith? And hasn't returned. What's going on there? Have they really been born again? Or are they simply trusting in a profession of faith? You see, there are, there are a couple dangers here. You know, and on the, 
mainline side, if you look at mainline churches that practice infant baptism, there are times when people can think, you know, I was baptized as an infant, I'm good. I'm in, right? It's done. It's taken care of. And in that same way, sometimes on the evangelical side, people can think, well, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was four or six or seven or something like that. And I I prayed that sinner's prayer. I'm in, right? Well, not necessarily. Jesus would talk about how what matters is our heart. And that shows in the way that we live. You know, I once had a man come to me. He doesn't go to our church. And he was talking about this friend of his, his best friend. And I knew the guy that he was talking about. And and this guy surprised me. And he asked me, do you think he's ever been born again? You know, here was a guy who uh, went to an evangelical church. And his best friend is asking the question, do you think he's ever been born again? It just kind of struck me. I thought, if your best friend wonders... (laughs) If you really are a Christian or a follower of Jesus, then your testimony's in trouble. But he was looking at this guy and just thinking there just hasn't been any change in his life or heart or attitude. And I thought of that when I come to a passage like this where Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you say you're a follower of Jesus if you have no intent to really follow him and to put into practice what God's word said. Do you know that even back then, people were struggling with the same issue? I mean, there were people who said, you know, because they were part of Israel, they were saved. I mean, we got the temple, right? You know, that's here. And uh, God's with us. We're the chosen people. And so just being a Jew meant that they were saved. Not necessarily. The Pharisees, they looked at their life. They prided themselves on how religious they were, that they went to the temple and prayed, you know, and they would pray seven times a day. They'd go up to the temple three times a day. They gave alms. They gave their tithes and their gifts and all these kind of things. They were very, very religious. And yet the Bible would say that, you know, it's the circumcision of the heart that matters. It's not the circumcision of the flesh. It's not just giving lip service to the Lord. It is letting that show in the way that we live. The proof of our faith is shown in how we live each and every day. And that's why James 2.17 says it like this, that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not a saving faith. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we return to the Sermon on the Plain that Jesus gave here in Luke's Gospel. And we're going to see what he has to say about being a follower of Jesus. Because that's that's really what this message is showing. When Jesus was talking about these things, he's talking about the kind of character traits and qualities that should be part of every follower of Christ. We looked at how... Uh, Jesus shared what we call the golden rule. And we see that again here today, that we are to treat others like you would want to be treated. And following up on that, Jesus gives four short commands. They are the commands, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. 
It really is the golden rule applied to others. I mean, if you want people to forgive you, then you need to be a forgiving person. If you want people to be generous when you are in need, then you need to be a generous person. If you want people to give you grace when you stumble and fall, then you need to be that kind of person that shows grace and mercy to others. But let's go back and let's look at these a little more closely. That first command, do not judge and you will not be judged, is one of the best known and most misused verses in the Bible. I mean, even your average non-believer knows that verse. In fact, they've probably used it. You know, if somebody questions their lifestyle or behavior, they'll throw it back and say, well, who are you to judge? You know, and sometimes because of that, it gets used for as an excuse for sin. Rather than admit that a behavior is wrong or that a decision they made was not honoring to God, they'll come back with this verse as though Christians should never judge, never make any judgments at all. You know, we're we're all sinners, so we're not supposed to ever say anything. But that's not true. What Jesus is speaking against here is what I would call judgmentalism. A negative and critical spirit. It's that kind of spirit or person who is always fault-finding. Always putting other people down. Critical of their behavior or actions. Not with the idea of helping someone to grow. But just kind of to make themselves feel better. And what you find is that very often the person making judgments is doing the same thing. Romans chapter 2 talks about that. Paul will say, you who teach, do you teach yourself? You know, you're sharing this with others, or are you putting this into practice yourself? You who say, don't steal, do you steal? You who say, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who say, don't break the law, do you break the law? You know, and he was pointing out how easy it is to do that. It's a little bit like two people having a conversation and saying, you know, she is such a gossip, do you know what she did? And then, you know, you go on and you share some spicy detail that you found and, and never make the connection that, wait a minute, there's a disconnect here. There's something wrong with that. So what kind of arguments, I mean, excuse me, what kind of judgments are we to make? Well, the Bible tells us, for example, we are to make doctrinal judgments. We are to have discernment and to discern between truth and error. Is this true according to God's word? Is this what he said? Or is what's being taught not true? Who are we to follow? Who are we to listen to? We need to make judgments and have discernment. We need to make moral judgments about our conduct or the choices that we make. We're confronted with that every day. We're to make those ethical decisions to live by God's word. And we are to make spiritual judgments in terms of what we value. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says that the spiritual man makes judgments about all things. I mean, we just look at life different. We're trying to look at life through the eyes of God's word. And so how we use our time, how we use our money, the things that we do, the things we say, we try to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And we exercise that kind of discernment. Will this help me to grow spiritually? Sometimes those choices we make are between the good, the better, and the best. And it's not between right and wrong, but it's that what would be the best thing to do in this situation? What would be the thing that would most honor God or 
help me to grow the most. You see, in contrast to the world, Jesus is saying that my disciples are to be gracious and generous. Gracious and generous because that's what we have experienced. And we see that in those two commands. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. I like how one commentator said it. If a person is unwilling to forgive, they better not sin. You know? It's like, if you're not willing to forgive somebody else, well, look at what Jesus said here. Forgive and you will be forgiven. You want to be forgiven? Then show that grace to others. And the person who is generous and gives to others who are in need will find that God is generous with him. It comes back. What we give, we receive. What you sow, you reap. And it comes back in many different ways. And Jesus is saying here, in fact, you pick the measure. Want to sow a little and receive a little? Do you want to sow a lot and receive a lot? God loves a generous giver. In 2001, Tim Gogline started running the White House Office of Public Liaison. And that provided him almost daily access to then-President George Bush. Well, all of that ended abruptly on February 29, 2008. A well-known blogger uncovered the startling facts behind some of Gogline's published articles. 27 out of 39 of his written pieces had been plagiarized. And when the facts came out by mid-afternoon the next day, his career in the White House was over. He said, I was guilty as charged. For Gogline, this began a personal crisis unequaled in his life, bringing great humiliation on him, on his wife, his children, his family, his closest friends, including the President of the United States. And although he was devastated, what happened next was an example of God's grace. Gogline was summoned to the White House to face the President. And once inside the Oval Office, he shut the door, he turned to the president, and he said, I owe you an apology. And the president said, Tim, you are forgiven. And he said, but I, and he said, stop. The president interrupted him again, and he said, I have known grace and mercy in my life, and you are forgiven. Well, they sat down that afternoon. They had a long talk that for Gogline was where the healing process began. It included repentance, reflection, and spiritual growth. He said this about that time. He said, political power can lead to pride. And that was my sin. 100% pride. People get in positions of power, maybe the feel like the checks aren't there or they can do just anything they want and they get into trouble. And he said, offering and receiving forgiveness for him is now a different kind of strength. It's the kind of strength that I want to develop and show to others. You know, we don't see that a lot in the media today. When somebody does something wrong, it's like it's a feeding frenzy. You know, it's just like it's there and they won't give up until somebody loses their job. And there are things that people do for which they should lose their job. But there are other times when you feel like, you know, people do make mistakes. People do make bad choices. 
And I think all of us would like to be shown grace and forgiveness in those times in our life. And Jesus is saying those who are followers of mine should be known as people who are gracious and generous. Secondly, he teaches us to examine our own life first. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to deal with the stuff that's in your own heart before you start to help someone else. And that doesn't mean that we need to be perfect. No, it just means we need to be on that path where we are growing and we're honest and we're humble about what's happening in our life. He begins in verse 39 by telling us to be careful who you follow. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus would warn the people at that time that the Pharisees were like blind guides. I mean, they were leading people astray. They professed things that sounded good, but their hearts were far from God, and that's the direction they were taking people. There is only one reliable guide, and that is Jesus. But what Jesus will tell us to do is to follow those who follow Christ. Follow those disciples. Follow those who are mature in the faith, who are growing, who are godly examples for you. And learn from them. And we see that all the way through the epistles where it encourages us to have those kind of relationships where we are being mentored or encouraged in our faith. Or somebody is discipling us and we're discipling somebody else so that they might grow. Along with that, be humble and teachable. Verse 40 It talks about a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. You know, we don't ever get to that point where we think like, you know, I've arrived. I don't need anybody else to tell me what to do in my life, you know. Or if you're young and you feel like, well, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'm going to go my own way. You are setting yourself up for some hard knocks in life. Those who are humble and teachable grow. Listen to your parents. Listen to those who are role models for you in the faith. Listen to your teachers. Listen to those who are pointing you toward Christ and follow their example. And when it comes to sin, take a good look at your own life first. Get that plank out of your own eye before you try to take that speck out of your brother's eye. And that is just, it's just a funny picture, isn't it? I mean, if you saw this as a cartoon, you know, drawn with some guy with a big, long plank trying to even reach the other person to pull a speck out of his eye, you know that you just can't do that. Jesus is saying, deal with the obvious things in your own heart and be honest about that. And in those relationships, you know, where you have people that are encouraging you, ask for prayer, ask for help. None of us are perfect. We all have areas where we're still growing and struggling with at times. And so we need one another. We all need God's grace. Listen to this confession by Pastor John Burke. And then see if you've ever done any of these same things. Uh, Like most of us, John Burke, he's a pastor at Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, assumed that he was not a judgmental person. I mean, you know, I feel like, hey, I'm a pastor. I'm gracious, I'm forgiving, I'm understanding, you know, I'm not a judgmental person. So what he did was he did a a test in his own life, kept a journal, and every time he made a judgment for one full week, he wrote it down. And what he found surprised him. He said, he found out that judging others is fun. (laughs) 
<laughs> Judging others can make you feel good. And he said, I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room. I judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm moody. <laughs> of course, I have a good reason for it myself. Uh, even my dog gets hammered sometimes for his bad breath or bad behavior. And he said, now some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No. But there is a correction that values people and does that with mercy. And there's a correction that devalues with judgment and puts them down. He said, I watch the news and I condemn those, quote, idiotic people who do such things. I mean, or most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, childish. He goes, I get in my car and drive and I can find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And then I even throw in a little condemnation for the Department of Public Safety for giving them a license. At the store, I can find myself complaining about lack of organization when I don't find something or the music that's being played over the speakers. Or when I get in that line that says uh, 10 items or less, I can count more than 10 in your grocery cart, you know? And what is wrong with these people? It's kind of the way he feels. And he's going through all these things and... Unfortunately, I can relate to that once in a while. And I can see those things too. Judging is our favorite pastime if we're honest, but we're not. We're great at judging the world around us by standards that we would highly resent being held to. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. But that's not what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be gracious, wants us to be forgiving, generous. And then he tells us in verses 43 to 45, remember this, that a tree is recognized by its fruit. What do people see in you and me? Do they see someone who is critical and fault-finding and judgmental, or do they see someone who is trying hard to follow Jesus and who's striving to be gracious and generous and forgiving? Somebody who really loves people. Thirdly, he calls us to build wisely. A follower of Jesus is careful how he builds his life. To disobey Jesus is to be like the foolish builder who didn't care about his foundation. He shares this example that we've all heard, but is very clear in what it is saying. He said, let me show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid that foundation on a rock. And when the flood came, that storm came, that house stood. But the other guy just didn't care or take much thought to the foundation that he was laying. And he built his house upon the sand. And when that torrent struck that house, it collapsed and the destruction was complete. The foolish builder either didn't think it was important or he thought he could get by without a solid foundation or maybe he was just lazy. I mean, you know, if you're going to build a solid foundation for your life, it takes time. 
And it takes intention. It takes being a person who gets into the Word of God, who is honest about his own heart and his relationship with God, somebody who is striving to be better, somebody who says, you know what, it's, it's not only important for me to go to church, it's important for me to be in that kind of fellowship or accountability group where I can grow and I can serve and I can give and I can put into practice what I'm learning. And think about the illustration Jesus shared. What would happen if someone tried to build a house without a foundation today? Well, you would hope that the inspectors would obviously catch that. I mean, that would be foolish. Can you imagine building a house without putting uh, footings down below the frost line? I mean, that's not going to work. Or what if they use poor concrete? Or what if they didn't do the things that they were supposed to do? Would that house stand? No, it wouldn't. You know, we actually had a house built in our neighborhood that I'm a little concerned about in that way. Um, It was built by a couple who uh, would just move around from community to community and they, they built houses themselves. And it really seemed like they cut corners. They just come in, build a house, sell it, buy or beware kind of thing and then move on. And so they had this house mostly built, foundation, walls up, siding on, you know, roof on, all the stuff, and it's there. And then one day this storm, this really heavy rain hit our neighborhood, and Gail and I are looking out the back window of our kitchen toward this house, and the basement wall had totally collapsed, just caved in. And... And they had to do some major work. And it turns out, you know, when they were building that foundation, uh, they didn't bother to core fill some of the block or to put in re-rod or steel in there that would give it a more solid foundation. They had just set block in place. And I'm concerned, you know, when you see things like that, is that house going to stand the test of time? Well, I would be worried about that. That when the storms hit, there's going to be more problems that will show up. You know, in contrast, this is a great story. In August 1992, Hurricane Andrew hit southern Florida as a Category 5 hurricane. At that time, it was the worst natural disaster to hit the United States. I think it was Hurricane Katrina that that exceeded it. But it was devastating. 25,000 homes obliterated in Miami-Dade County. 100,000 homes severely damaged. Okay, and when the news uh, reporters could get in there with their vans or trucks and they could kind of film the devastation and everything, they came to this one block where there was this one house standing. It almost looked funny. Everything else obliterated like toothpicks all around it. And this one house is standing there and the guy's out in his front yard and he's cleaning up after the storm. And they went up and they, they talked to him and they said, you know, hey, can you tell me, sir, why your house is the only one still standing? And the guy was like, well, I don't know about anybody else, but I built this house myself, and I built it according to the Florida State Building Code. And if it said use two-by-six roof trusses, I used two-by-six roof trusses. And if it said to secure it this way or to secure the foundation or build it this that's the way I built it. And they told me that a house built according to the code could withstand a hurricane. I did, and it did. 
Now, I know that there's some grace involved in that as well, obviously. But it is an interesting example that here was a guy who followed the code and his house stood. And I can't tell you, you know, if you follow the code here, that your house is going to withstand a, you know, hurricane or tornado or things like that. But I can tell you that if you build your life upon the foundation of God's word, it will stand. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You know, his point is that storms will come in life. They are unavoidable. They're going to happen to all of us. There are going to be struggles that we'll go through. There'll be financial challenges. There'll be things with our kids. There'll be loss of loved ones or illness or all kinds of things that can happen in a life. Well, where will you stand on that day? What will happen when they come? You know, some people try to deaden that. They turn to alcohol or drugs. They try to numb the pain in their life. Some people turn to sex or pleasure. Some people try to escape. Some people leave their marriage and their family. They just don't want to deal with this. And they, they go. Where will you turn? Will you turn to Jesus in that day? The wise builder builds his life on the word of God. He hears what God says. He takes the time to think about it. He puts that into practice. He lives that out every single day. And Jesus is saying that if you will do that, if you will build your life upon the word of God, you will have a firm foundation when the storms come. Let me give you an example of that. This week there was an article online uh, Christianity Today Online had an article about what had taken place in Egypt. You may have heard the stories that on Palm Sunday, as believers were gathering in their churches, there were two terrorist attacks where suicide bombers blew themselves up, killed 45 people in the Coptic church. There was an interview done with the wife of one of the men who was killed um, in that blast. And she was being interviewed by a Muslim journalist on a national broadcast. And when he heard her story and her testimony, he was so moved that there was 12 seconds of silence. And 12 seconds of silence is an awkward eternity on television. Amir Adib, perhaps the most prominent talk show host in Egypt, leaned forward as he searched for a response. What do you say? And, and all he could say after that time was that the cops of Egypt are made of steel. He's talking about the Coptic church, this ancient Christian church. The cops of Egypt are made of steel. Moments earlier, Adib was watching a colleague in a simple home in Alexandria speak with the widow of Nassim Fahim, who was the guard at St. Mark's Cathedral in the seaside Mediterranean city. And on Palm Sunday, this man had approached that he did not know, and he didn't let him through, and he directed him to go through the perimeter metal detector. And that's where this terrorist detonated his vest and blew himself up. Nahim was probably the first to die in the blast, but he saved dozens of others by what he did. And when his wife was being interviewed, she said, I'm not angry at the one who did this. Her children were standing by her side as she's saying this, and she's saying, I am telling him 
May God forgive you. And may we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. And stunned, Adib stammered about cops bearing atrocities over hundreds of years, but he couldn't escape the central scandal. And he said, how great is this forgiveness you have. His voice cracked. If it were my father, I would never say this, but this is their faith and their religious conviction. And millions marveled with him across the airwaves of Egypt. I mean, that Middle Eastern culture that he is a part of is so much like, you know, revenge is a part of life. You do this to me, I'm going to do this to you. It's back and forth. You don't forget. You have long memories. You don't have forgiveness. What is forgiveness or grace? You get even. You get back. And to hear this testimony of forgiveness, in fact, one of the things that ISIS is trying to do there is to stir up what they hope will be sort of a religious war like they did in Iraq between the Sunnis and the Shiites. But it's not happening because the cops, as Christians, have chosen to forgive and to live out their faith in that way. And one of their leaders was talking about in the history of the Coptic church, you know, it's a history of martyrdom. But they had gone through this season in our lifetime earlier where there was like this peaceful time and they could meet and they could worship and they felt safe to do that. And it is not that way today. And it has changed the church, but changed it for good. And they understand that there is a cost to following Jesus. And they understand that their life may be laid down at any time, but they are willing to come. It was amazing, this article, the um, churches where the blast took place did not meet on Easter, but the other churches were overflowing. The people came out in almost in defiance of what had happened to say, this is what we believe. And this is where we stand. It's an amazing story. And we need to pray for them and we need to pray for those who are their enemies that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord too. Let me share another example that picks up on another issue that affects our world today too. And this comes from uh, Dr. Joseph Parker. He actually was a pastor in the late 1800s, but I think you'll see what happened there is also relevant to today. Dr. Joseph Parker was a congregational minister in London. In the late 1800s, he was well known for preaching the word of God in one of the great city churches. But in his autobiography, he tells that there was a time when he gave too much attention to modern theories of his day. Men were reasoning and speculating and undervaluing the word of God. Science was, you know, in prominence kind of, and they were questioning the authority of the Bible or what it had to say. And that's not a message against science. I mean, science has its place in the world, but people were turning to that and were devaluing the scripture and devaluing their faith. And he was getting drawn into that. He said, you know, he found himself as he read their books and mingled in their meetings, losing his grip on the great fundamental doctrine that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in the blood of Christ. And then he tells that there came something into his life. It was the most awful sorrow that he ever had to go through. His wife got ill and died 
in just a few short hours and she was taken away from him. And he said he was unable to share his grief with others. He would walk through those empty rooms of his home with a breaking heart. His misery felt for some footing in modern theory and philosophy, and there was none. And then he said, addressing a companion of other congregational brethren, he said, my brothers, in those hours of darkness, in those hours of my soul's anguish, when filled with doubt and trembling in fear, I thought myself of the old gospel that I had preached. The gospel of redemption alone through the blood of Christ. The gospel I had shared in those earlier days. And I put my foot down and brethren, I found solid ground. You know, I think of that and what moves me by that story as I think of how that is happening today as well. And many, many times. And, you know, I've heard you as parents, sometimes you have older children who have, you know, grown up in the church and then something happens. Maybe they go away to college. Maybe it's the friends that they hung out with and they are drawn away from Christ. Or there are people who make that profession of faith and then for whatever reason, maybe hard things have come into their life and instead of turning to Christ, they turn to something else and they've walked away. You know what's going to happen is that when you are young, you can feel like life is good and I'm healthy and I'm strong. I can do whatever I want. But that hard day is going to come when there is loss, when there is suffering or there is sorrow. And where will you find your strength? Where will you find a place to stand? Is it going to be in the philosophies of men? Is it going to be in what they're telling you about modern thought? And they're saying, you know, that Christianity, that's, that's old-fashioned. That's not for today. That's not for me. Where will you stand? Because Jesus is saying that the only place that we're going to find a sure foundation is standing upon the promises of God's Word and putting our faith in Him as our Savior and Lord. To be a follower of Christ is not easy. We need to do these things that God has said here. We need to put our faith into action by treating others as we would want to be treated. Being a people who are known for their grace, their mercy, their generosity. We need to examine and deal with the sin in our own life first. We need to be honest. We are not perfect. And when we are helping others to grow, it's, it's not because we are better than anyone else. We are not. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. And we help others because of the joy that we want them to experience in their relationship with God, just like we have experienced in our life. And we are a people who have chosen to build our life on the foundation of God's word. His word is true. His word is that solid foundation for each of us. Let's pray. Father, your word is just so powerful. And when it speaks to us so clearly like this passage today, I pray that we would all rise up, say amen, and choose to live this way in a way that honors you, in a way that is good, in a way that is lasting and powerful. Father, where we have sinned, we confess that to you and ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that by your grace, we might grow and mature. And we, I pray that we would see how much we need one another to continue in this walk with God. That our 
friends, our peers, our mentors all make a difference in our life. So choose wisely. And I pray that we would be a people that are just devoted to your word, who love it, who delight in it, and put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.